uh, 17th of October 2010, the teachers' retreat at Springbrook Brook in Australia, uh, session number four with Stephen Batchelor. Today we're going to go into the first sermon itself, in other words, into a reading of the, of the Four Noble Truths. But um, I want to link this, first of all, by going back to what we looked at yesterday, when the Buddha describes his awakening as a kind of existential shift from attachment and preoccupation and identification with a place, with a role, with a status, with a fixed sense of who I am in the world. Moving beyond that, letting go of that, and encountering what he calls uh, the ground, his ground. The ground being uh, the phenomenal world itself, not as a as a fixed thing, but as a process. This ida pachayata, this condition in which everything arises because of particular causes and conditions, which he then describes as paticca samupada, the conditioned arising and necessarily the conditioned ceasing and starting again arising, falling, arising, falling, which is very much an account of the process of life itself, something alive. At the same time, he recognizes that this recognition of life is significant because he has somehow opened up to it from a place within himself in which something has stopped. And what has stopped, it is craving, grasping, clinging, greed, hatred, delusion. He has found um, a deep inner freedom from the very things that would otherwise tie him to his place, fix him as a kind of static uh, or eternal person or soul or self. He then um, finds himself in a rather perplexing condition where he doesn't actually know what to do next. What do you do with this experience? It's given him an enormous uh, jolt, one imagines. Uh, he's come, as he describes, of course, his experience as awakening. It's as though he's woken up from a sleep. He's woken up, perhaps, from a state of dreaming. And this again I think is important to emphasize that we should use the word awakening rather than enlightenment. Because the two words, which we can in some ways use interchangeably, but what is crucially different about them is the metaphor on which they are based. The Buddha does not, in the first instance, although he does in other contexts, speak of his experiences being light, like a light going on. But rather, he compares his experience to that of someone who's just woken up in the morning. And again, I don't think these words are chosen in ra- at random. It's also interesting to bear in mind that this word body, particularly somebody, complete awakening, is not a term that you'll find in the pre-existent Brahmanic traditions. And yet nowadays, this word enlightenment is tossed around as though it's as much to do with the experience of the, the Vedantic sage as it is to do with the Buddha. And this, I think, is a mistake. Uh, the Buddha selects this word bodhi, which I think in more general usage means to understand something. But it seems that he selected it because of its metaphoric um, power. In other words, it's not just a cognitive illumination. And again, we notice that he doesn't use cognitive terms here. 
He doesn't say, I knew. There's no based word in this passage. But he woke up to. And again, if you think of what it's like to wake up in the morning, it's not a cognitive act at all. It's a, a, a sudden a jolt. Finding yourself back in a complex world as a person with responsibilities, as a person now confronting a whole range of sensory inputs, a person who is aware of a body interacting with other bodies. Awakening, if we look back at the root metaphor, suggests a lot more than just coming to know something right. And I feel that that kind of uh, perspective uh, constantly needs to be borne in mind. Because I feel that a lot of Buddhist teaching, a lot of Buddhist writing, uh, tends to slip either into cognitive or psychological modes. Um, we psychologize Buddhism and we cognitize, if that's an English word, we make awakening into a privileged kind of cog- cognition usually about knowing something true rather than uh, being caught up in something false. Of course, there is a cognitive dimension to this, but that has to be understood as embedded in um, a a transformation of one's entire psycho-physical, emotional relationship to life. In other words, the Buddha's starting point is existential. It's not cognitive, it's not psychological, it's not behavioural. It might include those things, but really it has to do with a shift in one's uh, existential perspective, one's perspective of who one is as a person existing in this world who is born, who will die. So the Buddha now finds himself in this position, what do I do next? We talked about this yesterday, no need to go over it again. But the point that I didn't mention there was that in some ways his challenge was to translate the principle of conditioned arising, the principle of stopping, which he considers the ground. And again, I'd like not to think of those as two separate things. He has to translate that into a form of life, a way of life, something that other people can, as it were, take as a model or as a template for their own existences. So how do you translate conditioned arising, seen from the perspective of a deep stopping within oneself, into a path, into a way of life? That's the challenge. And I feel that this occurs right throughout what subsequently gets known as the Dhamma. In other words, all of the practices are really um, uh, attempts to describe how such a transformation, such a shift in perspective can come about and the consequences that that then entails and the possibilities it opens up. He then goes to Sarnat, he starts teaching, and what does he teach? He teaches the Four Noble Truths. Now the Four Noble Truths, therefore, I would argue, are the first attempt, and perhaps the core um, uh, example, of the translation of the principle of conditioned arising into a concrete set of tasks to perform, one which conditions the next, and the next conditioning the one after. In other words, the four truths uh, tease out the principal idea of conditioned arising into a sequence of acts, a sequence of causes and effects. And this is why I feel that the first sermon concludes in the way it does. It concludes by saying, by the Buddha saying, I'm going to read the text backwards a bit. 
as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of these four noble truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in the world. The Buddha emphasizes the twelve aspects of the four noble truths. Again, not a doctrine you'll find much discussed in Buddhism at all. Um, uh, I only came across it when I was first when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk doing fairly specialist study in a body of materials called the Parachin or the Prajnaparamita. And yet, it is the concluding statement within the first sermon. I, to me, it is the starting point. Not only does it define quite unambiguously what the Buddha meant by awakening, it also recognizes that the four truths are not four propositions which we can either choose to believe or disbelieve, but rather four tasks which need to be recognized, performed, and accomplished. Each truth has to be recognized, performed, and accomplished. And we see this in the text itself where he says, such is suffering, recognition. It can be fully known. This is what this is the task to be performed in relation to it, to fully know it. And it has been fully known. That task has been accomplished by me. Three times four equals twelve. That's how we get the twelve aspects. Is that clear? Yeah? Twelve aspects means each truth, and there are four truths, needs to be recognized, performed, and accomplished, and that makes twelve. So he describes a complex um, set of actions um, which for each truth are different. He doesn't say you must understand the Four Noble Truths. And again, that's often how it's presented, especially when the Four Noble Truths get set up as um, essentially dog dogmas, uh, truth claims. But um, each truth, in fact has to be related to in a highly specific way. The first truth is to be known, fully known. The key word is actually fully. The second uh, truth needs to be let go of. Quite a different thing altogether. The third truth needs to be experienced. Uh, The Pali word literally means see it with your own eyes. See it for yourself. Know it for yourself. And the fourth truth has to be, we can translate bhavana either as created or cultivated. It has to be brought into being, literally. That's what bhavana means. Even though nowadays bhavana is often translated as meditation. Which again shows another bias within the Buddhist tradition. Because the Eightfold Path is not reducible to meditation. Each of the aspects of the path... Uh, calls to be cultivated or brought into being in its own specific way. Cultivating right speech is not the same as cultivating mindfulness. And yet all of them are integral aspects of this way of life that, once again, engages the whole of our being. Not just our spiritual life. And again, as Buddhism becomes a spiritual tradition, a religious tradition you see those biases kicking in. It's about meditation. Bhavana means meditation. Bhavana in Tibetan is translated as God, usually understood as meditation. Bhavana in most Southeast Asian countries is again almost invariably understood as some sort of spiritual discipline, some kind of meditation. Metta bhavana actually means the cultivation of loving kindness. So, In contrast, then, to what you will almost invariably uh, read if you open up a book on Buddhism, uh, I mean, try it and see, it'll start by describing the Four Noble Truths. And it's interesting to look at the way they get presented. They get presented as four um, doctrines, as it were, four, the technical word is propositions. Life is suffering. The cause of suffering is craving. Um, nirvana is the cessation of suffering. Or the cessation of suffering is nirvana. 
and the Eightfold Path leads to the cessation of suffering. These are truth claims. They uh, presume to describe some state of affairs in reality. That life is suffering. That the origin of suffering is craving. That Nibbana is the cessation of suffering. And the Noble Eightfold Path leads to the cessation of suffering. These are truth claims. And as a Buddhist, as a believer, you're expected to believe those things. And if you don't, well, what business do you have calling yourself a Buddhist? That's what it boils down to. But let's just step back to something I've said a number of times already, that the Buddhist teaching is not descriptive, it is prescriptive. It's not a doctrine that's trying to describe the nature of reality, but it is a teaching that is prescribing a course of action. We saw this already with the idea of conditioned arising. It's not presented as something uh, that describes how things are, although it might. That's a secondary question. But it opens up the possibility that you can change your experience, your existence, you can transform yourself by attending to the conditions of your life and what consequences they give rise to. So in other words, when this is, that arises. In other words, by, if you do X, then that's going to give rise to Y. If you don't do X, it won't give rise to Y. It's something to do. The four truths, therefore, I think need to be understood uh, prescriptively and we need to put aside or abandon the emphasis on description. So what do the four truths look like as prescriptions rather than descriptions? And I've written this up on the board. And again, I'm just taking it, adapting the language slightly, but I'm taking it from the Buddha's own statement at the end of the text. The first task is to embrace suffering or to fully know suffering, something to do. The second task is to let go of craving, something to do. The third task is to stop craving or to experience the stopping of craving. And the fourth task is to act, to do something, it's to create and to cultivate a path. Now I think it's only when we um, look at the four truths in terms of things to do can we understand why the Buddha presented them in the sequence that he did? Uh, this has always been a problem for me for many years. Why does the Buddha present the four truths in that sequence? It makes perfect sense to me only when we see the truths as tasks because the first truth, the practice of the first truth, embracing dukkha, is the condition, the cause that gives rise to the letting go of craving. And the letting go of craving is the condition that gives rise to the stopping of craving. And the stopping of craving is the condition that gives rise to the creation of a path. In the, in the traditional account, the orthodox account, you, get a, you have to get into some rather, um, some rather peculiar mental gymnastics to explain how the cause-effect relation between the four truths operates. Because it starts with dukkha, there is dukkha, or life is dukkha, or whatever, and that is considered to be an effect, a result. You go to the second truth, and then you find its cause. Craving is the cause of dukkha. Then you have the third truth, which is again a result, the cessation of dukkha. And then the fourth truth is its cause, um, the Eightfold Path. So instead of going cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect, which would be what you would expect if you understand the four truths as uh, an, a realization of the principle of conditioned arising. Instead, you go effect cause, effect cause. Do you get that? Do you see what's going on? 
So that would be another uh, question mark to put over the classical model. Why does it have to entail this strange effect, cause, effect, cause? Now the usual way that's explained is to say, oh well it's like a medical diagnosis and treatment. You first of all recognise that you've got a sickness, then you go to a doctor, the doctor tells you what the cause of the sickness is, then the doctor says that can be cured, and then he applies a course of treatment. That's not illogical. But what is clearly the case is that something the Buddha never said. Uh, never, nowhere in the canon do you find the Buddha explaining the four truths in that way. Nor does Sariputta, nor does any other canonical text look at the four truths in that light. It's a later commentarial attempt to make sense of how the four truths are structured. Also, conveniently for my argument, it's a, a, a model that we find in the pre-Buddhist cult, culture, which suggests yet again how the orthodox pre presentation of the four truths um, is, has been designed to make the Buddha's teaching fit into and I'm going to use this horrible word again, soteriology of um, classical Indian religion. Soteriology means the way we think about salvation, the way we think about liberation, soter in Greek. How do you spell that? S-O-T-E-R-I-O-logy. Soteriology. Now, um, I, I, I'm very tempted, of course, to sort of make this presentation into a dispute with tradition, but I don't really want to do that. I want to, first of all, lay out how I understand it uh, on the basis of the text itself. And then, this afternoon, if you want, we can look into some of the questions that might arise from that presentation. So um, let's look then at the structure of the, of, of the sutta. Um, the, the sutta begins with the Buddha presenting the Noble Eightfold Path, which he calls the Middle Way. Um, he says, one gone forth, we go back to the beginning of the text, one gone forth does not pursue two dead ends, infatuation and mortification. One gone forth, the word is parabadika, which means a renunciant, someone who has left home for homelessness. This is both a reference to uh, the, the culture of his time, when there were many, many parabadika and parabajaka, which I've only recently come across. There were both men and women renunciants. We often think of it as being a, a bloke's thing. The man leaves home, leaves the wife and the kids. But there are actually many examples in the canon of, of women renunciants who also go, off, go forth. Of course, it's downplayed in, because it's a patriarchal system that then came to remember the tradition. But it's quite clearly there in the text. There were men and women leaving home, begging and pursuing a life of the mind. That's the context of the Buddhist time. In our times I think we would probably understand that rather differently because we no longer live in a world where in order to practice the Dharma we have to become a monk or a nun. That's often encouraged, particularly, strangely enough, by monks and nuns. <laughs> but I think we can all understand uh, the idea of going forth from home to homelessness is not so much a literal account of literally walking out of the front door one day and not coming back but rather uh, a shift of perspective a moving from a fixed place to another kind of fluid ground in fact I think the place ground distinction is basically a way of describing the uh, of explaining the expression going forth from home to homelessness so someone who has 
decided in their life not to simply live according to the dictates of one's position and place, but rather to seek what we might call truth or insight or awakening or enlightenment or or whatever, to seek something which cannot be found by remaining in a fixed situation. And such a a person uh, goes forth into the unknown, basically, into an open space. There's a beautiful expression, which I've also cited um, on page 14 at the bottom. Seeing that dwelling in a house is a constriction, a place of dust, and that going forth is an open-air life, he went forth. That's a very literal translation of a verse in the Sutta Nipata. And it occurs right through the canon. It's one of these stock phrases. But again, it's very clear. The, the open-air life, um, Sadatisa translates it, but, but, but life on the road is open wide, which I rather like. Uh, and I like the idea of the household life is in a sense a place of dust. Nothing moves. And as we know, all too often, if we own a property, if we don't clean it, it gets dusty. It gets covered, it gets murky, it loses its gloss, its shine. And that, of course, occurs also any kind of fixed sort of um, state of mind. If you're attached to anything, you're allowing dust to settle. It becomes dusty, it becomes old, it becomes opaque, it becomes dull. So again, this emphasis on movement, this emphasis on um, uh, move, on, 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 on embarking on a journey, as the Buddha also puts it. So that's the person who's gone forth. And such a person um, does not pursue two dead ends. The word is usually translated as extreme, but um, the word is actually anta, which means an end. Um, I.B. Horner translates it as dead end, which I think is very good. Uh, Dead end means uh, a path that doesn't go anywhere is a dead end. And the middle way, by contrast, is a path that does go somewhere. A dead end is a a fruitless uh, exercise. You, You spend a lot of energy, you just don't get anywhere. You get stuck. And there are two tendencies within getting stuck. One is the tendency of um, worldly indulgence or infatuation, obsession. And the other is the, other is the, the opposite pole to that, which is self-punishment, uh, um, self-mortification. Uh, again, it's you, the example usually given is the classical Indian ascetic practices. But frankly, I don't think that's terribly relevant in our case. I don't imagine that when you get tired of, you know, uh, you know, watching movies all day, that you'll decide to go and say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I think I'll go and stand on one leg for 15 years. <laughs> we don't do that. So we have to really rethink what does mortification mean in our case. And I think it means any behavior that somehow imposes um, disciplines and uh, obligations and practices that... Um, we can't, that we feel that we can't really be uh, making any progress in unless we're suffering. It's self-punishment. And I think in, in some ways you can also see it as, in, in, the, in the more secular sense of how, uh, how people, especially younger people these days, literally punish themselves. They cut themselves. Or they, 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 they somehow, or bulimia, anorexia. These are probably all contemporary symptoms of self-mortification. People who feel they can't function in the world anymore and the only way that they can somehow feel alive is by hurting themselves. Now there's a very interesting passage in um, the Udana, which is in page 31 in your text. Um, I'm afraid I'm again going way over time. Uh, but I'd like to ma- I'd like to just read this passage out. Um, this is the Buddha speaking. What has been attained and what is still to be attained, both these are littered with dust. Same image for a frail person. Now, even if you've attained something, 
even if you feel you're, you're, you're confused and you're stuck in that perception of yourself, it's a dusty place, it's going to get dull, nothing is going to be moving. Those who hold training as the essence, or who hold virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy and service as the essence, this is one dead end. And those with such theories and such views as there's nothing wrong in pursuing sensual gratification, this is the second dead end. Both of these dead ends cause the cemeteries to grow and the cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. By not penetrating these two dead ends, some hold back and some go too far. It's an amazing passage because um, it, it... Especially the first part, you know, pure livelihood, celibacy, virtue and vow, this is a dead end. You might be thinking, oh, wait a minute, I thought that's what we were supposed to be doing. But here you have a passage, this is not my translation, it's from the BPS edition, translated by John Ireland. Um, in other words, it's, it's the orthodox te- uh, translation. It's a very striking passage, and it refers, the Pali commentary to this text, says these are the two extremes mortification and sensory indulgence. And yet here, the Buddha's not saying standing on one leg for 15 years. He's saying virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy, service. In other words, the things we would normally think of as religious practices, religious behaviours. It's as though the Buddha's seeking to find a middle way between a religious life and, let's say, a sensual life. A life in the world, a life in religion. Religion, or religious practices, are likewise open to becoming a dead end. I think we clearly have to understand this as attachment to these things, rather than the things in themselves. Um, But nonetheless, here you get a very different picture of what the middle way is. Uh, The middle way is one in which you don't get caught either by a fixation around being good, being spiritual, being religious, or around uh, an endless and rather fruitless quest for eternal gratification by whatever, you know, whether you're into being famous or whether you're into being a Don Juan figure or whether you're into being a dope addict or whatever it is. So we have to find a middle way between these two. That, I think, is where the Buddha's teaching becomes, again, very radical. And also, you know, and as, 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 uh, as um, relevant today as it was then. Uh, and again, it really does question, is Buddhism a religion? Is it actually a way of life that seeks to avoid both extremes of religion and the extremes of uh, indulgence, sensory indulgence. And what would that be like? And this I fear, and the Buddha describes this, he says, and I have woken to a middle path that does not lead to these dead ends. A path that generates vision and awareness, leads to tranquility, insight, awakening and release, or freedom, and has eight branches. So what the Buddha's envisaging is a way of life in the world that gets caught up neither in the dead end of of, of, of sensuality nor in the dead end of religiosity. That's how I would understand this. And then, without any transition, he goes straight into the four truths. Now, it might already uh, have struck you that he's already talking, he's already spoken about the fourth truth. That's where he started. He said, I've awoken to a middle way. It has eight branches. That is the fourth noble truth. Now he goes back to the first noble truth. You see, this is a very short text, but there's an awful lot packed into it when you start to pick it apart. Why does he start with the fourth truth and then go back to the first truth? What's going on? As we'll see later, I'm going to... Or read it, actually. Read the the, the parable of the city, and you see the same structure. 
starts with the Eightfold Path, leads to the Four Noble Truths. We're back to the first sermon now, page 15. Well, actually 16, I'm sorry. So the Buddha says, I've awoken to this new way of life. And then he, d- he goes straight into the first noble truth. This is dukkha, he says. Birth is painful, aging is painful, sickness, death is painful, encountering what is not dear, separation from what is dear, not getting what one wants. This condition we are in, the five aggregates, is painful, is dukkha. Again, very, I'd rather not actually translate dukkha, to be honest. It only creates problems. Let's just try and stick to the word dukkha. Now, um, again, if we take this as a description, life is suffering, which it seems to say. Uh, the psychophysical condition is dukkha. Then, of course, people say, but wait a minute, I can think of many examples when I'm not suffering. I can think of many cases where people are happy. And so then, the, you know, the, the Buddhist response to that is, ah, oh, but you see, they're not really happy. Real happiness only comes about when you practice Buddhism, funnily enough. <laughs> now, I, th- I think this is a good example of how a descript- reading this as a description leads you into unnecessary problems. Uh, we find the same thing. Christ- Christians get caught in exactly the same trap. They say, God is good. God is love. And God created the universe. And so the objection is, well, why is there suffering? Right? Why, why, in, why does God allow you know, massacres in Rwanda? Or why does God allow children to suffer from ghastly, wasting diseases? And so you have to then get involved in what's called theodicy, the justification of God in the world. Buddhists have the same problem the other way around. They say everything is suffering, and then the objection is, but how come some people are happy? How, I was really happy last year. I wasn't suffering. So then you have to explain it away. But you get, the whole problem is, is, is redundant. Because as soon as you uh, look at these truths as injunctions or prescriptions <coughs> to do something, rather than descriptions of the state of the world, you don't have that problem completely disappears. In other words, what the Buddha is saying is fully no suffering. Embrace suffering. It's something to do. It's not a, a metaphysical truth claim that everything is suffering. That may or may not turn out to be true. That's a secondary point. The key is if you wish to enter this middle way, recognize, embrace um, the fact of dukkha. And you don't do this just as a kind of intellectual assent to the idea a kind of, you know, sort of uh, uh, drawing up a list of all the dukkha-related things in your life. Knowing them. Yeah. I got born, I guess that was pretty painful. I, got, I had a really bad illness last year. Um, my boss is a pain in the neck. It's dukkha, 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 right down the line. Yeah, I know it. This is not what's meant. What is meant is that we fully know it, and the real challenge now is to understand what fully means. What does fully mean? Well, I think, fairly obviously, uh, fully means that we attend to it in a much more uh, focused and open and stable way than we normally do. In other words, we attend to it with mindfulness, with awareness, with clear comprehension, with it's all, all of these things that we practice in meditation. Slow down, look at what's going on, recognize um, uh, your life from this perspective. That's one, in other words, it fully means with more depth. Um, And I would argue that all forms of Buddhist meditation, not all, but many forms of Buddhist meditation, certainly what we're doing here, and as I mentioned yesterday, also the practice of the Zen, what is this? are all ways of fully knowing dukkha. Dukkha being the, the state we're in. Birth, sickness, aging and death are not options. 
We might be lucky and not get terribly sick, but that's about the only... Or we might die before we get old. But basically, this is the state we're in. Uh, in fact, all of these things, encountering what we don't like, etc., all of these things are things that just happen. They're not things that um, um, uh, are kind of optional. This is extremely likely to happen. And it's not something that's really within our control. Um, as the popular phrase has it, shit happens. The first noble truth is fully know that shit happens. Because you see, the problem is we spend much of our time pretending that shit doesn't happen. We spend a lot of time, as it were, denying that and taking refuge in a place where we feel immune or somehow anaesthetized from the condition of the world. And again, I think in meditation it's very important to notice this. It's very important to notice the, 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 the various uh, internal strategies we adopt to actually deny what's going on. And that's why meditation is so difficult sometimes. Because we're told to do something very simple, just pay attention to what's happening. But do we do that? Well, sometimes, but a lot of the time we don't. We're running off in some, you know, some escapade in our mind or some silly memory that might have some significance psychologically. But it's often, I think, simply a strategy to avoid what's going on. It's the way we retreat. And the more we, 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 we start we, we, we commit ourselves to the practice of you know, regularly stopping and looking and seeing what's going on, the more that we start to see how much of our habitual behavior is a kind of flight, a kind of running away, uh, an, an, inner, an unwillingness or even an inability sometimes to um, face our experience um, fully, to acknowledge in all honesty and humility, this is the state we're in. And not to flinch or recoil from that. This is about fully knowing dukkha. I think in any kind of therapeutic process, it has to start there too. You can't really get anywhere in any, let's say, you've got some say process of psychotherapy without actually first owning up to the fact that this is real, this problem. We need to look it in the face. We need to address it rather than re repress it or deny it in some way. But I think there are other meanings to the word fully too. The next one um, that comes to mind is that fully is not just about knowing our own experience, our own existential condition more deeply. It's also beginning to recognize that dukkha is not just my problem. That dukkha um, is there every time we open up a newspaper. Every time we switch on a telly, every time we read a, a decent book, or even a non-decent book, but, it, but it, 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 the dukkha is, 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 pervades the lives of all beings. And you see, I think dukkha is in the first truth is being used really as kind of shorthand for dukkha, anicca, and anatta. Um, this again is something that I found very valuable when I was studying in Tibetan tradition um, where the four noble truths have 16 aspects each one has four and the first noble truth the four aspects of the first noble truth are anita, impermanence, dukkha not self and emptiness four marks of dukkha four marks of our condition that we pay attention to so to fully know dukkha is to fully know impermanence, to fully recognize that our condition is changing, it's shifting, to know that it is impersonal in a sense, it's not intrinsically me or mine, that it is empty of any essential, self-existent, essential realness, and it is dukkha. So you see, dukkha is actually a feature of the conditions of life. Uh, and we find in the Buddha's second sermon, which is called the Mark of Not-Self, 
Um, the Buddha quite clearly um, sequences uh, these uh, three things. Uh, again, this, the, you have this on page 18. Uh, this is my own translation of the Buddha's second sermon, which was given to the five bhikkhus in the Deer Park uh, shortly after the first. It's not a widely studied text, uh, but it's very interesting. Um, on page 19, this is the, the sequence the, the Buddha uses. What do you think, monks? Are your body, feelings, perceptions, inclinations and consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Does what is impermanent give rise to happiness or, or dukkha? Dukkha. And is it right to think of something impermanent and fickle that gives rise to dukkha as this is mine, I am this, this is myself? No, sir. So you see that, in a way, what gives rise to dukkha is the fact that nothing remains, nothing stands still, nothing lasts. If, this is dukkha as a mark of being, not dukkha as a vedana, as a subjective feeling of pain. Dukkha is far more than that. And this is one of the reasons it's so difficult to translate. To say, sabha, you know, sabha sankara dukkha. All conditions are dukkha. Now, all conditions are certainly not painful. I mean, this is a sankara, this is a condition thing. But is it if I drop it on the floor, is it going to go, ouch? No. But in what sense, therefore, is it dukkha? It's not an easy question, and it's a very, it really throws, shows the difficulty in tr even trying to translate the word dukkha. Because it's a characteristic of conditions themselves, not just a characteristic of me when I feel a bit depressed. So, um, to fully know dukkha means to attend to all of these features of the world, our lives, and at the same time to recognize that this is not something that just happens to me. And I think particularly, in the, if, if we think of fully knowing dukkha as leading to a greater and greater insight into the impersonality of our experience, that the body, the feelings, the perceptions, the way the Buddha breaks down, deconstructs our experience, um, also is a process of deconstructing the notion that there's a fixed me that either inheres within it or is part of it. And when that begins to break down, our experience becomes less and less self-centered and we become more and more open to the fact that all beings, uh, in all conditions, are also subject to dukkha. So fully knowing dukkha is also a process of opening up empathetically. It's not just about this deeper knowing or embrace of our own condition in meditation. It's also a horizontal or breadth opening to the suffering of the world, as the Buddha says, you know, sabha, a sate, you know, may all beings be happy, may all beings not suffer. This has not, this is not just about me. So I think we find in the, fir, in, in the first, tr first truth, qua injunction, qua task, a practice that already leads us to the beginnings of compassion and love. I think that's unavoidable. If we think of the first truth as the task of fully knowing Dukkha. That means both in depth and also in breadth. I would also argue that the fully knowing of Dukkha um, opens up the world aesthetically. That uh, the more that we let go of our fixed perceptions the more the world becomes um, somehow radiant. I know this sounds a bit odd now, but I think it's true. Uh, it came, this, this really came, come, came home to me when I was a monk uh, in the Tibetan tradition. Um, we used to, every day we had to meditate on death. The certainty of death, the uncertainty of the time of death. And then what do we do, if that's the case? Official answer being, practice the Dharma. But if you do that exercise, 
Um, what happens is that rather than the contemplation of death being a kind of morbid and gloomy exercise, just making you feel more depressed, it actually has the opposite effect. The more that you are aware of the impermanence of your life and the fact that you might be dead tomorrow, you might even be dead this afternoon, you might even be dead, I might have a heart attack any minute. None of us are that young anymore. <laughs> but we're always on the, on the edge of death. Now when we as it fully know that, and again, this is in the first truth, death, that's part of the first noble truth. Death, death, death. Think about it. Fully know it. If you fully know it, what happens is you become vividly aware that you're alive. Perhaps you can only really be aware of how alive you are when you know that it's about to end. It's, it's we're just hovering on the cusp of our own mortality all the time. But we, 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 we block that out. And I don't think it's we consciously do that. I think our organism is primed not to notice it. And this is why I feel that when we're talking of craving, we're not talking about the fact that I, have a, I can't stop craving for ice cream, which is terribly superficial. Craving is built into the survival of the organism. And the organism is primed not to pay attention to the first noble truth. It's not in its interest in terms of survival. So what we're doing in this practice is we're actually going against the stream of our own neurobiological condition. That's why it's so bloody difficult. Seriously. It, it, and this is why when you try and meditate, even if you've been doing it for years, the, the organism sometimes almost immediately recoils and, and, and doesn't want to do it. Why don't you want to sit quietly for an hour? Even though you've had experiences where you know it's been great. There's very often deep resistance to doing that. And why is there such a deep resistance? Well, I think one possible answer is because the very simple act of meditating goes against everything the body is primed to do. Everything the organism is primed to do. It's, and this, and this, is, I mean, this is called Mara. Mara uh, is sometimes is called uh, Skanda Mara. The Mara, Mara, the demonic, is is built into the Skandas themselves. It's built into the structure of the world itself. It's not some psychological thing. It is that too, but it's actually built into the structure of the world. And the Buddha says in one passage, "There is nothing as powerful in this world as the power of Mara, the armies of Mara." These are referring to the fact, not that we've got some really, you know, some difficult mental states we have to deal with, though that's obviously true too, but actually the structure of the organism, the structure of the world, is in a sense a limit condition that is um, uh, pushing and driving us and not to fully know the first truth. So what the fully knowing Dukkha is, is extraordinarily demanding. It's probably the most difficult thing there is to do, I, 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 I would say, as a human being, to really know that. And we're nearly out of time. But I think it's important that we really do pay attention to what is implied in this fully knowing of Dukkha, because it's only when we really grasp that, I feel, that we can understand the rest of the path. Because, just in brief, when if, just imagine, if you really knew Dukkha in the way we've been talking about just now, if you really knew it, if you were constantly aware of the suffering of the world, of the impermanence and the fragility and the ephemerality of your own being, if you really knew that, um, would you, in fact, um, uh, have any interest in trying to get this and get rid of that? The whole, the whole uh, dynamic of craving and grasping and greed and hatred would basically lose their raison d'être, their rationale. That um, you just wouldn't do those things anymore. Craving would start to fall away of its own accord. If you knew that whatever object that is now currently being 
dangled in front of your eye by some multinational corporation, if you really knew that that thing was impermanent, was um, uh, something that would rapidly go out of fashion, uh, something that could, could not in any meaningful way contribute to the quality of your life, if you really knew that, then you wouldn't crave it. It's as simple as that, really. If you really knew, and again, look at the example of, say, the rather successful campaign to get people off cigarettes. Uh, basically, people have, have now got the message that smoking kills. You know, you, you often think it's rather amusing. You see a packet of cigarettes and it's got, it's got these ghastly warnings on it and people still buy them and puff away. But over time, it seemed the message seems to have got home. Uh, that even though you crave the cigarettes, you, you, you've got enough understanding now that it's, it's not a good idea. And when that becomes collectively more and more accepted, then the craving for cigarettes falls away of its own accord. Because you now understand something you didn't really understand before. So what is, is crucial in, in working with craving is understanding. If you really understand the situation you're in, craving will no longer appear to be a particularly um, effective response to it. And so the perspective that you adopt becomes the precondition for the letting go or the dropping away of those habits of mind that are constantly grasping, clinging, wanting, etc., etc. It's not, you don't get rid of craving by somehow pushing it aside. In fact, that will be probably counterproductive. But, but coming to see yourself in the world in, from a very different perspective, such that craving no longer has any meaning anymore. It falls away. It drops off. And we can see quite, it's quite simple from there, from the second to the third truth, as the craving begins to fall away, then that's obviously the precondition for moments at which it stops altogether. And when it stops, when you realise at that moment you do not have to be conditioned by those impulses and drives, you experience freedom from them. And that is Nibbana. Nirvana. And that that, that experiencing for yourself that you are not conditioned by those things allows the possibility of leading a life from a different perspective altogether and that is the entering of the path, the Eightfold Path. So tomorrow we'll continue with this, um, maybe reiterating some of it and then possibly also... You know, you see, one of the other curiosities of this version is that um, craving is, 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 is actually comes to be understood not as the cause of dukkha, but as the result of dukkha. That um, craving is our habitual reaction to dukkha. Uh, if there were no, and this is actually clear, if you look at the twelve links, you, you, it's very clear. The first truth, which is Nama Rupa, consciousness, six senses, contact, feeling, all of that's the five khandas basically, which is dukkha. That is what prompts craving. It's strange. The, 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 the clearest example in the canon of how craving functions is not as the cause of craving, but as the effect. Craving is, a, is our reaction to dukkha, either grasping or rejecting. The only way that it makes sense that craving is the cause of dukkha is in the context of the theory of rebirth. Craving causes dukkha because craving causes you to get born. Craving causes you to get born again. It's the driving mechanism behind rebirth. If in this secular approach we've put all that theory to one side, then clearly it's not a particularly useful idea. And um, instead, we can then see how craving is the consequence. It's our habitual reactive uh, relation to uh, the condition of our life. And it's an inappropriate one. We actually take refuge in craving. 
craving seems to give us, the, it opens up the possibility that we can find well-being or we can get rid of something we don't like effectively by behaving in that way. And of course it doesn't work. Or it only works temporarily. And the other thing that comes out of this model is that Nibbana is not actually the, the, uh, the, the result or the consequence of the Eightfold Path. It's actually the beginning of the Eightfold Path. Uh, the, 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 the being unconditioned by, by craving, the stopping of craving, and it's, again, this is a momentary thing, it's not going to, once you've stopped it once, it won't come back again. But that's the precondition for the path. It's what leads into the Eightfold Path, not the other way around. So when you see the Four Truths as tasks, it actually turns two very fundamental Buddhist dogmas on their head. Instead of craving being the origin of suffering, suffering is the origin of craving. Instead of the path leading to Nibbana, Nibbana leads to the path. We must stop now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.